Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. Today we'll be joining Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld for the final week of Romans, the heart of the gospel. I sincerely hope you've been challenged in your journey by this series. Today, Dr. Newfeld will be teaching from Romans chapter 3 and talking about what the cross teaches us about God and what it says about us as well. So let's open our Bibles and begin. A number of years ago, the Christian reader produced a great story. The author said that when he was a child, the church he attended celebrated the Lord's Supper on the first Sunday of every month. And on that Sunday, there would be two offerings. One was the regular offering, and the other was a special offering for the poor and the needy. And his family always gave to both, but on this day, when he was nine years old, his mother, for the very first time, gave him some money for the benevolent offering, which he put in the basket when it came around. And later, as people in the congregation rose to go to communion, he rose also. But his mother told him, son, you can't take communion yet. And the author said he remembered his childish response. Why not? I've paid for it. It's kind of a cute little story. But I think it's a telling story at the same time. There is something within each of us in that story, especially when it comes to the cross and the story of our own salvation. Something within us always wants to take credit for something that God has done. Now, those of you who know the church language know what it means to give our testimony. It's a technical phrase in which a person talks about how it is that they were converted to Christ. I've heard hundreds of them, perhaps even thousands in my life, and and I quite frankly love them. But there are two oddball ones that come to mind, and they stick out. One man said he became a Christian when he was young. He said he was maybe five or six. And he said, I had no sense of my own sin, but I did have a sense that asking Jesus into my heart was the right thing to do. Oh, wow. That was the first time I'd ever heard someone praising themselves for their own conversion. The second one comes to mind and is very similar. This was a woman who was converted in her adult years. She told the story of growing up with an abusive father and a very domineering sister. And by the time her story was done, she had described a father that was too proud to come to Christ and a sister who was too self-absorbed to come to Christ. But she declared that she was not like them when she was converted. See, I can't get those two accounts out of my mind. They're just shocking. They were shocking when I heard them, and they still seem shocking to me today. And they made me wonder if these stories are maybe in some way true in all of our hearts. So today, looking at Romans chapter 3, verses 25b to 26, we're going to examine what the cross tells us about God and what it tells us about ourselves. Speaking of the cross of Jesus, which takes away the sin of all who believe in him, Paul says these words, This was to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you notice that not once, but twice, Paul repeats an interesting phrase. The cross, he says, was to display God's righteousness. That's why God placed the cross at the center of his creation. We've already noticed that in Romans 1.17, Paul declared that the gospel, the good news that Christ died on the cross for our sins, this good news is a declaration of God's righteousness, and now he repeats it two more times. 
I'm convinced that if 99% of evangelical Christians were to write the words that Paul wrote, we would have said, this cross is to show his love, or to show his mercy, or to show his kindness. I mean, we might even quote John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's what the cross displays. And of course, it does display that. We would be right. But that's not what Paul says here. In fact, what it says here makes us understand something crucial. Here's what the cross teaches us about God. In fact, I'm going to say there are three things in this passage that the cross teaches us about God. Here's the first. The cross displays God's righteous character as nothing else can. So let's remind ourselves that God's righteousness means, very simply, that God always does what is right. He is a God of infinite justice. He's a God who never lies. When he speaks, he only speaks the truth. He is a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who will not tolerate evil. And the cross shows that in the way that nothing else can. What this passage teaches is that Jesus dying on the cross... In fact, the hatred against him, the the kangaroo court that condemned him, the false witnesses that lied about his character, the beatings, the whippings, the cursing of him and those who spat on him and the nailing of him to a tree to die, those who mocked him as he died, that event is the best, most excellent display that we could have of the righteous character of God. This is a better display of God's righteousness than that which is found in the law, where God tells us what is right and what is wrong. This is a better display of God's righteousness than punishing a deserving sinner in a lake of fire. How so? Let's get ahead of ourselves just a bit and go all the way to Romans 8.32. Before the verse in question, Paul asks, what shall we say of all these things? And then he answers, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Now go back to Romans 3.21, where Paul calls Jesus a propitiation or a wrath-bearing sacrifice. We might say it in this way. In order for God to display his righteousness and to display just how seriously he takes the issue of sin, he actually demonstrated his attitude towards sin by not even withholding his own son, but made him a public demonstration of what sin actually deserves. Years ago, Mel Gibson came out with a very controversial film. You'll remember it was called The Passion of the Christ, in which he depicted in horrifying detail the suffering of Jesus. The day before my son and I went to the movie, I encountered a man from my church who had just seen it the night before, and I asked him what he thought of the movie. And he told me that he was ashamed. And I asked him why, and he said, I saw in horrifying detail just what God thought of my sin. And I walked out weeping both for my rebellion and for God's amazing love. And I think he had it exactly right. What God displayed about himself on that day in Calvary showed us more of the glory and the love of God than anything else, including the grandeur of the universe or the glory of the law or any other thing. The cross is the centerpiece of all of God's works. And isn't it amazing that at the very place where God would display his righteousness and displeasure at human rebellion, yes, yes, at that very place is also the place where we find mercy and love. That's the glory of the cross, and that's what it tells us about God. There's more. Not only does the cross display God's righteousness, and Paul adds, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. So then here's the second thing that the cross tells us about God. The cross displays why God could be gracious to people in the Old Testament. The former sins were the sins of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and others. 
I mean, think about David, guilty of murder and adultery. The law mandated that David should be stoned. No temple sacrifice of goats or bulls could have removed that guilt. The only thing that remained was that he be punished. But David himself knows there is a place of mercy. And so he begins Psalm 51 by calling out, Have mercy on me, O God. But how can he get mercy when God is righteous? And then he makes his plea. He says, According to your steadfast love. The Hebrew word is the word hesed. It means the mercy of God found in his covenant. David didn't know how it was that God could erase his sin. He just knew and believed that God would find a way. And he believed. And Paul says, let me explain how God could forgive David. He could do it because the day would come when Christ's cross would pay for David's sin. You see, the only way anyone was forgiven in the Old Testament is the exact same way that anyone is forgiven today. It's through the cross and it's through the mercy of God that is displayed in that cross. But there's one more thing that we learn about God from, from the cross. The cross displays why God is gracious to people today. Paul says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why doesn't God punish all sin immediately? The answer, because of the cross. Why? Today, is there an opportunity for you to come to your senses and to turn from sin and to turn to Christ? Yes, there is. Why is this time being granted to you? How is it possible for you to sin with impunity? And rather than God responding immediately and striking you at that very point, why is God being patient? And the answer, says Paul, it's because of the cross. I mean, that might be you today. I mean, you might be going your own way, doing your own thing, and thinking that God will do nothing about it. Please hear me. The only reason that God hasn't responded to your sin today is because of the cross. That's why God is gracious to you today. Those are some of the things that we learn about the cross of Christ. And when we come back, we're going to find out what we can learn about ourselves from the cross. Remember, we've said, first of all, we learn about who God is from the cross. And secondly, we will learn about who we are from the cross. So when we come back, we're going to learn an unforgettable lesson about ourselves from the cross. The first half of today's program has been a powerful reminder of the beauty and significance of the cross. Dr. Neufeld began by mentioning what the cross teaches us about who God is. The cross teaches us about his righteous character and his incredible grace. God's grace is what allows us to find ultimate forgiveness that we can claim today through the cross. After the break, Dr. Neufeld will explain what the cross teaches us about who we are. Thanks for listening to today's program. If you've been enjoying the Bible teaching of Dr. Neufeld in the previous weeks, I'd like to encourage you to sign up for our Bible Matters publication. Bible Matters is a free resource delivered to your house six times a year. It's filled with spiritually engaging articles that will call you into a deeper walk with Jesus from Dr. Neufeld and other ministry friends and leaders. To sign up today, go to our website at backtothebible.ca or give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now let's rejoin Dr. Neufeld for the second half of today's program. We began by talking about what the cross tells us about God. We now turn to what the cross teaches us about ourselves. Let me read Romans 3, 27 to 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? 
it is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, you may have noticed that Paul asks and answers a series of three questions. And before we go to them, I want us to notice that Bible teachers are in some disagreement as to whom Paul is asking the questions. Is he asking the questions of those who criticize this gospel? For instance, the uh, German theologian Rudolf Bultmann called this teaching of faith alone as the means of salvation. He said it was nonsense. Others have said that it's a fiction for it creates a monster of us. People believing that they have been forgiven only for believing. This would make us irresponsible, some say. Is Paul simply repeating and then answering the kind of questions these critics would have been asking? Well, perhaps. But it's also possible to see these series of questions as ones directed at believers in Jesus. Now that we've come to believe that our hope is by faith in the finished work in the cross— It's absolutely necessary that we think about that. It's imperative that we come to some conclusions about ourselves. I think that's how Paul means these questions here. So let's look at each of these three questions. Here's the first of them. Should I take any credit for my salvation? His question, then what becomes of our boasting? And if we can't answer the question, he answers it for us. It is excluded. I wonder if you've noticed that we're all chronic boasters. We love getting credit for things, and we love taking credit for things. And therefore, it is possible for us, after we talk about what Christ has done for us, to look for some small little area in which we can take credit for some of our salvation, even if it's in just the smallest little area at all. I think we say something like this. Well, I had the humility to repent and accept Christ, or I had the insight to believe, anything at all, just as long as we ascribe some virtue to ourselves for our salvation. And so to help us, Paul asks another question. If you're going to boast anyway, by what kind of a law are you boasting? Or perhaps we could translate it this way. By what kind of a principle are you using to get some credit for your salvation? Do you think that there's even one small aspect which earned you any good standing before God? And then, just in case we're still wavering, Paul adds... We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Another way of saying that is, you merited nothing, not even your faith, not even that merited forgiveness. You know, I wish I had time to show that faith itself is God's gracious gift to us. So what do I learn about myself from the cross? Well, I learned that there is not one single virtue inside of me that merited God's love and forgiveness. I can't look at those who don't know Christ and claim that in even one small area, I'm morally superior to them. The minute you and I do that, we pour contempt on the cross. Instead, we ought to pour contempt on our pride. Now let's look at the second series of questions. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? So let me rephrase this for our benefit. Do I belong to a people group that has an advantage over others? 
We've already seen how it is with the first century Jew and how that Jew might feel superior to a Gentile. We also know that the problem of Jews and Gentiles in one church in Rome would have raised some problems. Should a Gentile be allowed to give leadership in the local church, given that they don't have any of the advantages of being a Jew? And those of us who come from Christian homes and come from Christian traditions might feel the same way. But what I learned in the cross is that God had to justify me by faith in the same way he had to justify anyone else. Whatever people group you belong to, you are in no way superior to anyone else. You, like they, are desperately sinful and needing of a Redeemer. Now the third question. It's found in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Now, there's the $64 question. And by the way, I think Paul has in mind here the Mosaic law. Here's how the question goes. In Romans 3.20, Paul has said, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. He means that by trying and even by keeping God's commands, this will never justify your sin. Well, if the law of God can't save you, should we take the law and its commandments and throw them away? And to that, Paul answers, by no means, on the contrary, or exactly the opposite. We uphold the law. And what can that mean? So for Paul, even though the law cannot save us, there is a continuing role of the law in the life of every believer. But what is that role? Well, from this text, I think that when Paul uses the word law, he's using it as a series of commands given by Moses. But which commands? We know that circumcision isn't required, neither are the Jewish dietary restrictions, and neither should we sacrifice animals, and neither keep rules of ritual cleanness. But all these concerns are not the central ones. The point of the law was to teach a love of God and love of neighbor. It was to teach a fear and a reverence for God and a compassion for others. It was to teach you to run from idolatry and cling to real worship. It was to warn you against sins like disrespect of parents or murder or theft or covetousness and so forth. Think of it this way. Three chapters from now, in Romans 6.1, Paul will ask the question, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Shall I just keep on sinning to show how great the forgiveness of God is that is found in the cross? And his answer is never. See, we must admit, we have a somewhat complicated relationship with the moral commands of God. None of us believes that we're superior to others when we keep the commands— because even our best moments are tainted by sins. We don't think that keeping any command saves us. Only the blood of Jesus does. But we are rescued from lawlessness by Jesus, and we simply refuse to return to lawless behavior. You know, there's a scene in a very famous book, Les Miserables, by Victor Hugo. Jean Valjean was recently been let out of prison, and he finds his way to the home of a bishop. And the priest takes him in and gives him a bed to sleep in. But as they're eating supper, Jean Valjean notices how valuable the silverware is. So he wakes in the night and quickly puts silverware into his sack and escapes into the night, only to be found by the police who bring him back to the home of the man of God. There's an arrest that comes, and uh, if it happens, Jean Valjean will spend the rest of his life in prison. The police recognize the silverware and bring it back to the home of the priest. They ask the bishop if this silverware belongs to him, and the bishop says that he's given it to Jean Valjean. In fact, he asks Jean Valjean, if the, in the presence of the police, why he didn't take the candlesticks as well, since he gave them two and then puts them into the startled Jean Valjean's bag. 
And then the police have departed. The bishop tells Jean Valjean words that will forever change his life. He says, with these candlesticks, I have purchased your soul for God. With these candlesticks, your life is no longer yours. That's what the cross of Jesus did. God says, with his son, I have purchased your soul for God. And it's this last truth that we learn about ourselves from the cross. We are no longer our own. We were bought at a price. We have become servants of Jesus. John, what a dynamic message. What a great hope there is in knowing that it's about faith. But I can see those who would say, you know what, it's just about believing, it's about faith. And if it's just about those things, then the rest of my life is just a free-for-all. So how would you answer that? I think that's one of the greatest fears that everyone has regarding this teaching of Paul. It just can't be true, we say. It'll make us irresponsible. And Paul seems to know that is how some people are responding. But I want to begin simply by making this statement. Think about the alternative. If you don't accept a teaching of justification by faith alone, the alternative is that you'll take credit for something you did and you'll move very quickly to works righteousness. Some of us in our fear of people becoming lawless, people becoming uh, disobedient to the Lord, run towards works so quickly because we think that's the only alternative. And I want to safeguard this teaching. Uh, Ben, I think we need to. We just need to push it harder than ever before. We are justified by faith alone. And we believe that, um, you know, Luther said it, when we're justified by faith alone, that faith is not alone. I mean, God provides a transformation in our hearts through that. So I'm all about saying, I understand how important obedience is, but boy, we'd better never talk about our obedience saving us. John, you also mentioned at the very end of your message about uh, being a servant or becoming a servant as a result of our faith, because really, shouldn't our faith have some kind of impact upon how we choose to live our lives? Sure. Faith is utterly life-transforming. It's life-transforming because... We don't believe that faith is simply easy believism. We believe that faith is an act of total surrender of ourselves in the hands of God. I trust God. I trust the cross of Jesus fully. And as an action of my trust, I surrender to Christ. I wouldn't surrender to him unless I trusted in him. So this idea of faith as being surrender, I think is connected to the way in which we live our lives. But we do want to come back to it and always say, but we get no credit for that. All we've done is surrender to him. Always said, I trust you and I don't trust me. That's all that we've said. And even that act of trust, we want to say, that's a gift from God as well. Amen. Thanks, John. What an incredible image. We've been purchased through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, and as a result, we're set free and forgiven. I hope that today's message has humbled and encouraged you. The cross teaches us that we're no longer our own, but we belong to God, and that we can be saved by His grace as we trust in the power of the cross for forgiveness and to set our relationship with God right. And that's something that is available to each one of us today, just for the asking. Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will be continuing his series in Romans, The Heart of the Gospel, with a message from Romans 4 on being justified by faith. We hope you'll join us for tomorrow's edition of Back to the Bible Canada. At Back to the Bible Canada, we exist because we believe that God has called us to share his word with the world and lead people forward in their relationship with Jesus every day. 
We often receive comments from listeners telling us how our radio programs have impacted their lives and their spiritual journeys. One of our listeners, Desiree, said, Back to the Bible has been an amazing instrument to help me grow in my faith in Jesus. Thank you for keeping so clear and true. We'd love to hear how God has used this ministry to draw you closer in your walk with Him. So give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or email us at info at backtothebible.ca. We want to hear from you. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.